the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, good afternoon, Bay Area. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman broadcasting from my office here in San Jose, California, near the Westgate Shopping Center. If you're new to the show, I'll let you know a little bit about what I what I do on this show. I tend to go and look at questions and issues that have come up around the state of California in the area of estate planning. I uh, let you know what those issues are, and then I give my opinions or insights on the air in the hope that uh, people out there listening will hear something that will be of value to them in their particular situation or the situation of a family member, a friend, or a coworker. Uh, I do take calls on the air, and uh, in order to give me a call, if you have a question you'd like to me for me to take on the air, it's 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com. That's radio, just like you'd think it would be. And then lawbob, L-E-W-B-O-B dot com. So I thought today, uh, as a little bit different from the the usual approach that I take here, I thought I'd spend at least a segment or two talking about um, some legal issues that come up fairly regularly around here in the state of California. In fact, the first one I'm going to talk about has to do with the issue of getting property that belonged to someone who actually had a trust in place when they died, But for whatever reason, they had property that was left out of the trust when they died or it was in the trust, but then it was taken out of the trust for some reason and then not put back in, which is what was originally intended by the person creating the trust. This type of situation comes up frequently. In fact, um, just today I've been contacted by, by two parties from uh, Southern California, uh, one down in the OC and then one in Riverside, where they have just this situation. In both cases, we're talking about title companies um, that, and in one case a realtor, in one case a title company, where they have someone who wants to sell property that was owned by a trust, but they've determined when they pulled a preliminary title report that the property is actually in the individual name of the person who created the trust 
and not in the name of their trust. Now, you might ask, how can that possibly happen? I thought that the purpose of having a living trust was to make it so that things like that don't happen and you can avoid conservatorship during your lifetime and probate at death. Well, that's exactly what living trusts are used for. Most of what I do as an estate planning attorney and specialist is in the area of drafting comprehensive, very thorough, very well-defined living trusts to carry out the wishes of my clients. But as happens more frequently frequently than it should, sometimes people create a living trust and they don't transfer all their property into the ownership. Maybe they create it and their real estate is put in, which is something that I do for people. But then later on, they go to refinance their home or refinance an investment property, and they go to a lender that requires them to take the property out of their living trust so that a new loan can be put on. Now, let me just say right now, Living trusts, for the most part, give the power to the trustee of the trust, that's the person in charge of the trust, in a case like this, typically also the person who owns the property and created the trust in the first place. It gives power to that person to borrow against property owned by the trust. Uh, Sometimes you'll see language that says borrow, loan, hypothecate, which is a fancy word for borrow. But in any any case, the trustee has the authority explicitly in the trust to borrow against property of the trust. And yet there are many major lenders, and I won't use names because I don't want to get sued, but there's many major lenders that will require people to take the property out of their trust in order to put a new loan on, even though it's the same people that they're dealing with before and after the transaction. Unfortunately, when that happens, usually goes through an escrow. There's a deed taking the property out of the trust. Then there's a new loan put on and a deed of trust to secure that loan, typically a promissory note that's been signed by the people borrowing the money. And then they forget to tell the title company to prepare a deed to put it back into their trust. Now, I like using the analogy of a living trust being like a toy box for your toys. And your toys, there's a lot of different toys that we can have uh, as adults. We can have our house. We can have rental properties. We can have raw land. We can have bank accounts, brokerage accounts, uh, expensive cars, jewelry, works of art, collections of various things. All these things are toys that we have. Those toys that I've mentioned are the kind of toys that can be put into the Living Trust toy box. So when someone goes to refinance their home, for example, which happens now and then, and some people even refinance several times during their lifetime in order to get better rates, pull more money out to do home improvements or take vacations or whatever it happens to be, when that happens, that's taking a toy out of the toy box and playing with it. But then if you don't put it back in, if you leave it on the floor, and those of you who have kids, like I have kids, I have daughters that are fifth grade, and uh, believe you me, I'm regularly after them to pick their toys up off the floor and put them away where they belong. Well, if you have property taken out of a trust, 
that um, that isn't put back in like it should be, and then the person dies, you end up with the situation where if it's real estate especially because of its value, you don't have a quick and easy way as a general rule to get that property back into the trust. You might have a will that says, hey, go through the probate process and then turn it over to the trust. You'll find that there are certain counties in California, which I will not mention on the air, where they will require a family to go through the entire probate process of nine months or 12 months or more in order to get, say, mom or dad's home into the trust that they set up. And it's all because mom or dad took it out of the trust to refinance. Well, let me tell you, um, that's just one example is real estate. You could also have a brokerage account. If the brokerage account is more than $150,000, that will trigger a need for some kind of probate court action to get that into the the trust that the person set up. Now, here where I practice, I have a procedure in place that permits people to actually, as long as everybody agrees, this is all the beneficiaries of a trust agree, and as long as... um, as long as, well, not only the beneficiaries agree, but uh, they consent to have the case heard in a particular court here in the Bay Area, I can actually go into that court and make sure that the um, make sure that the property can get into the trust often very quickly within a week or two, instead of going through the whole probate process in the county where the uh, where the property happens to be located. Now, looking at at my uh, clock here, it looks like we're probably coming up on the first break of the show. Um, Can I get that confirmation of that? Okay, and how much time have we got? Okay, we've got about 20 seconds left. So I want to urge you, if you'd like to give me a call, call me at 800-516-1220, and I can take your call on the air. So please um, feel free to give me a call, and after the break, we'll come back and talk some more. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. Bob Bergman here. Um, Of course, you just heard that. Uh, If you'd like to give me a call and have any questions uh, or that you'd like to have answered on the air, it's 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com if that would work uh, better for getting a question to me. You can certainly check there and see if anyone has uh, requested me to answer something on the air from that particular email. Now, before the break in the first segment, I I was talking about what's called a Hegstat petition. That's H E. G-G-S-T-A-D. And it's called a Hegstat decision because there was a court case involving a family named Hegstat. There was also another case with which was Ukestat. So some reason, apparently, we have all these Scandinavian cases dealing with properties that were left out of a trust or not put in a trust. Speaking of that, this type of petition um, where I practice, it's possible to use um, 
to use this petition to actually gather in an asset that was acquired after the trust was created. For example, if someone set up a living trust and then later on they sold their home and bought a new home but forgot to title it in the trust name, uh, or they receive an inheritance and they open, say, a bank account, put the money in there in their name, but they forget to actually transfer it to the trust ownership. Um, there are ways to actually get the property still into a trust after someone's died. If there is, uh, if the property's mentioned in the trust as being part of the trust, that's good evidence of the intention of the person creating the trust to have that property be owned by the trust. If the property, whatever it is, real estate, bank account, brokerage account, you name it, if it is listed on a schedule of some time of some kind, a schedule of assets, for example, indicating what's in the trust or intended to be in the trust, that's good evidence. If there is a a document like an assignment of assets, either a assignment of current property that's owned or an assignment of current and future property that is acquired in the future, which is the type of assignment that I prepare in the plans I do, <clears throat> that's, again, written evidence of intent. And a pour-over will, a special type of will that directs that, hey, uh, when I die, anything that I own or that's payable to my estate that uh, that um, that comes in if it's over a certain total value, which in this case is essentially $150,000 in value, then please use this will to direct that that property go into the trust that I already have in existence that I set up before. Where I practice, it's possible even to go into court with this Hegstat petition and get property acquired after the trust was created and get it put into the trust just using that pour-over will as written evidence of intent. Now, probably most counties in the state of California do not consider just a will referencing turning things over to a trust as sufficient written evidence of intent. And I'm going to share something with you um, I'm going to share something with you right now um, that is uh, kind of a, a little bit of a legal analysis. The law that deals with Hegstats actually states that we're looking at written evidence of the intent of a person that property be owned by their trust. Now, the key is a will that's signed by somebody during their lifetime doesn't actually take legal effect until the person dies. Before then, it's just words and a signature on some pages, uh, pieces of paper with writing on it. At the time someone dies, now the will takes effect. And at that point in time, I argue, and I've argued successfully in a number of courts, that the written evidence of the intent of the person who created the trust is right there in their will taking effect at the time they intended it to take effect, which is after death. That has been a successful argument in a number of cases that I've had. In many parts of the state, that is not a successful argument. They argue that it's not evident, a president or evidence of present intent that property be in the trust and therefore should not be used, and you have to go through the whole probate process. I happen to think that that is wrong, 
It actually creates more time and effort and expense for the court system, especially when everybody whose interests are affected all agree this property should be in the trust so the trust can distribute it and we can get on with our lives. So part of what I do as an attorney is help out those families around the state that are in this situation, but they're in counties where it's going to take them a long time to get that kind of relief. And maybe they could not even get Hegstat petition relief in their county because they don't have enough written documentation of intent of the person who created the trust. I'm, uh, I was approached actually literally today with, with a situation like that out of Orange County where a realtor contacted me and the, and the person who owned this property died. It was in their name. It actually had a reverse mortgage on it, which means it had to be in their individual name. Now the family wants to sell the property because they're still having interest accruing on this large balance of this reverse mortgage. But they've been told by the by the firm helping them down there that it's going to be six or seven months to get into the Orange County court to get an order signed declaring this property's part of, in this case, the the parent's trust when the parent died. That is insane. Uh, it's going to take so long because the courts are so backed up in that county that they're pushing hearing dates out further and further and further. I mean, even in Santa Clara County, where I practice, noticed hearings where there's actually a hearing in front of a judge are two and a half to three months out from the time that you file your paperwork. That's a long time, too. So what I told this realtor was, hey, have your clients contact me. They can contact me at my dedicated website for these kinds of issues called hegstathelp.com, H-E-G-G-S-T-A-D-H-E-L-P.com, all one word, hegstathelp. They can read about the issue. They can contact me and schedule a consultation. We can do everything over the telephone and through email. And if they're motivated and they get the information to me right away, um, I can likely go in, put together a petition without a noticed hearing, consenting to venue in the county I would go to, and actually go into court, turn over the petition, get a signed order the same day, get that order issued in a certified form and get it down so the title company can record that, and now they can sell the property. That could be as little as one week, uh, one to two weeks, which is a lot better than I think you would agree than six or seven months. So we're coming up the mid-show break. After the break, I'm going to talk about another type of legal relief that I pursue for people in the courts dealing with trusts. So until then, this is Attorney Bob Bergman. Talk to you after the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. Well, before the break, I promised I would be talking about a another type of court action that I take in order to help families that have trusts. And this is what uh, is kind of generally called 
um, a uh, 15403 or 15409 petition. And um, when I'm referring to those numbers, are statute numbers in the probate code of the state of California, 15403 and 15409. And let me explain what we're talking about here. We're talking about taking an existing trust that is no longer a revocable trust or was created as an irrevocable trust. So it's irrevocable, meaning unchangeable uh, as a general rule. And we're going to take an irrevocable trust and we're going to do some kind of modification to it or terminate it, meaning end it completely, or we're going to uh, just uh, amend it in some way. But we're going to do it using the probate code of the state of California and going to court, laying out what we want to do, and then asking the judge to sign an order saying, as Captain McCard would say, make it so. So what are we talking about here? Well, probably the most common thing that I see in my practice, especially I've been practicing a long time now, about 38 years, And in that time, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, even as recently as, now that I think about it, uh, 10 years ago, and for some people, even in the last five or six years, there's been a type of trust that has been created for married couples that's called an AB or ABC marital trust. Now, to summarize briefly, that kind of trust says... When one spouse dies, we're going to take the share of the deceased spouse, and instead of just giving it to the survivor or having it go into a um, what's called a marital trust for the survivor, we're going to put it in what's called a bypass trust, which is typically, but not always, the B trust in the AB. The bypass trust is an irrevocable trust for the benefit of the surviving spouse and maybe surviving spouse and descendants, like children, for example. And the main feature of the bypass trust when it was done 20 years ago or so was the property that went into there would use the federal estate tax exclusion amount available to the spouse that died in order to take that property plus future appreciation or growth in the value of that property and remove it from federal estate taxation when the surviving spouse died. Now, here in this valley in Santa Clara County, where I practice, if you're talking many, many years ago, the exclusion was $600,000. Today it's $11.4 million. So a little bit of a change over time there. But back when it was $600,000, it was not unusual for a married couple to have an Eight hundred, nine hundred thousand, or million dollar estate here in this valley, because of their house prices, because of the insurance that they owned, because of cash in the bank and stocks and bonds and mutual funds, that was not an unusual estate at all here in Santa Clara County. Now, if back then, if everything went to the surviving spouse, say they had eight, nine hundred thousand, a million dollars when the first spouse died, then the survivor died. Everything over the exclusion that the survivor had available, say $600,000, was subject to federal estate tax. And it wasn't a a really tiny tax. It wasn't a few percent. Uh, The estate tax started at 18% and at various times in the history of the estate tax 
has gone as high as 50 or 55 percent for larger estates. So it's not an insignificant tax liability. Fast forward to today. Many, many thousands of married couples, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of married couples, um, have this type of trust even though there's no estate tax problem anymore for those families. So I have uh, surviving spouses coming in to see me, and it's usually usually someone referred to me. They weren't my original client. They walk in. They want me to update their trust, and I look at the trust and see it's one of these types of trusts. And I have to tell them, well, you can't really update the trust. You've never done the division in the first place. The only way you could control everything and update everything is if we go to court with the permission of the beneficiaries of the trust, similar fashion to permission of the beneficiaries for a Hegstat petition that I talked about in the first half of the show, and then go in and and ask the court, say, look, we'd like to change this trust. We all agree it's a good idea to get rid of the requirement that we divide it up into a revocable share for the surviving spouse and an irrevocable share for the surviving spouse. Why would you want to do this? Because you want to get the what's called the capital gain stepped-up basis on real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, precious metals, jewelry, works of art, things like that that might be in the bypass trust. Otherwise, it not only bypasses the taxable estate of the surviving spouse if it's in a bypass trust, but it also doesn't get revalued for income tax purposes called the stepped-up cost basis when the surviving spouse dies. That's a big deal. That's a big deal because if you're talking about someone who lives 10, 15, 20 years past their spouse and there's real estate or stocks or bonds or mutual funds in this bypass trust, they could have doubled or even tripled in value during that time period And that could end up costing the family a lot of income tax when they go sell it later because they get the value when the first parent died, not the value when the second parent died. So this is a very typical type of reason to go into the court to modify an irrevocable trust, and it's to modify it to remove requirements that it be divided in order to get income tax benefits for the surviving spouse and for the family as a whole. But there's other reasons to do a modification of a trust. And this is another situation that could easily arise in the future. Mom and dad have a trust. Um, They leave everything in this AB trust. That's the first thing. But then they leave it to their three children. Dad dies. But at the time dad died, one of the children was now a special needs person, meaning they they had been injured, uh, probably injured in an accident, had a debilitating disease or had a stroke, something like that. And now they're a special needs person and they're getting government assistance uh, for income, for health care and maybe even their housing. That kind of person who's a special needs person cannot directly receive an inheritance from someone without it directly interfering with whatever benefits they would be receiving from the government because they are a special needs disabled person. So the question becomes, okay, 
Uh, if mom's the surviving spouse, she can change her half of the trust, the A portion, to reflect that the share going to that child goes into a supplemental needs trust for that child instead of directly to them. That could protect it from being lost or interfering with benefits. But you have this other half, the B trust, the bypass trust, that's irrevocable. And it says, give it outright to that child who's now a special needs person. That would be another reason to go into court to modify the trust. Even if you wanted to keep and preserve the bypass trust for asset protection reason or because you do have a taxable estate, still going in and modifying the bypass trust to reflect that that disabled child's share is going to pass into what we call a supplemental needs trust for that child. That is to preserve for that child the total amount of inheritance from both parents and not have it be used up or have to be all spent before the government will help out again. There are lots of other reasons why you might want to modify a trust. You might want to include asset protection features for the inheritance being passed on that didn't exist before. Having an inheritance passed on in asset-protected lifetime trust, what I call castle trusts, could be another excellent reason to go in and modify an otherwise irrevocable trust. Uh, I find a lot of the older drafted didn't contemplate something like that, and they just say, hey, when both mom and dad are gone, turn everything over to the children, just hand it to them. Well, as I've already mentioned, if the person's a special needs person, that can be a serious problem because it can blow their government benefits for them. And on the other hand, if, if someone receives it directly, it's now, as a direct inheritance, subject to creditors' claims, potentially divorcing spouses' claims. It may also be subject to malpractice claims if they're a professional, business claims if they have a failed business. There's all kinds of things that could come in and actually impact an inheritance. So that might be another reason to go into court and actually modify a trust like this. Now we're coming up on the midpoint of the show in about a minute or so. I want to urge you, if you'd like to talk with me on the air, feel free to call me at 800-516-1220. You can also email questions to me at radio at lawbob.com. You could also visit my main website at lawbob.com if you want to find out more about me, what I do, and uh, find out more about my seminars that I give in my office, Living Trust Seminars and Seminars on Retirement Plan Trust Planning, Special Planning for Retirement Plans. So we're coming up on the third break of the show today, and uh, I just want to urge you to call and stay tuned. The last segment... I'm going to switch over to questions and comments from around the state of California. So until then, this is Attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. We're in the final segment of the show today. Um, early in the show, I was talking about Hextat petitions, which are special court petitions designed to take loose toys 
that are on the floor from someone's trust and put them back into the toy box that's their trust after they have died. Uh, a Hegstep petition can actually also be used if someone is still alive, but they're now incapacitated and they can't sign anything and they don't have someone with a power of attorney that is given the authority to actually title assets into the name of their trust. So that's a less common use, but it could be used for that purpose as well, as long as you can prove written intent of the person. Now, clearly you couldn't use a pour over will as evidence of intent because the pour over will is not in effect if the person's still alive. Still alive. But if there's a schedule of assets, an assignment of assets, even if there's a letter that says, I'm putting this property in my trust, that's probably sufficient to get it in the trust. The other thing I talked about were uh, probate code section 15403 and 409 petitions, which are designed to do modifications of an otherwise irrevocable trust in order to accomplish goals such as uh, um, better income tax outcome for the family or to modify a trust to provide that uh, a family member is now receiving property in such a way that they're not going to lose government benefits or receiving it so that they actually have asset protection for that property when they eventually receive it and say a surviving um, parent passes away. So I'm going to use the last segment of the show, which is not all that long, to cover a few more things around the state of California. I always get regular feeds of questions and people looking for answers all over the state to sometimes very obscure situations that I don't bother people with on the air, but then other things that are much more likely to impact people who might be listening to the show this afternoon. Uh, Just as also uh, to let you know, the show rebroadcasts at 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Just tuned in. You could actually listen to it then. It also podcasts at kdow.biz, that's .biz. You can look for Pioneer State Radio, and you can always listen to this show or earlier uh, podcasts, which are the podcasts of the earlier shows. So here, um, someone's asking, what's the difference between a trust and a will? I'm sure a lot of people have that question. They said, I have papers that say last will and testament for my dad, but they're not notarized or court-stamped or filed. At the same time as given trust agreement papers that have a notary stamp on them. Are these legal papers? Well, first of all, a will here in California, unlike a few states, is not a document that you would have notarized by a notary public. Wills are typically either done all in the handwriting of the person who created it, called a holographic will, or uh, it could be a will form, the statutory will that's filled out by someone, and then signed, and you typically have two or more witnesses to the signing of the will. Um, The will will go through probate if that's all you have. If you have a trust, typically a trust, even though it's not required to be notarized, the better practice here in California is to have living trust documents actually uh, signed and then notarized by a notary public. Uh, We don't really see these documents witnessed. I suppose it could be done, but it wouldn't really add anything. Adding a notarization or witnesses doesn't add to the validity of a trust signed by someone in California who created the trust. 
but it does act as as more of an authenticator that yes someone actually was told by this person they signed it they it was notarized and their signature presumably appears in a notary journal somewhere that could be compared so someone showed id took id and then indicated yeah this person signed um, they told me they signed this document. They acknowledged they signed. Um, then a will goes through probate. A trust, as a general rule, will not have to go through the probate process in order to have property distributed. So here, can a trustee sell a property to themselves if they're a licensed realtor um, and they're going to sell it at below market value? I would say absolutely not. Uh, not without the absolute informed consent of every beneficiary of that trust whose financial interest is going to be affected. A trustee doing that, selling something from the trust to themselves for less than market value, that's basically self-dealing, and it's almost a form of embezzlement because you're cheating the other beneficiaries out of the full value of that property. So I would say, as a general rule, that is a no-no. That's not something that you would ordinarily do, and it would take the massive informed consent of all the beneficiaries to agree to let the trustee buy property at less than market value. So here we go. Uh, Okay, well, it looks like we got about a minute left. I don't have time to do any more of these today. I want to urge you... um, Visit my website at lawbob.com. You can there you can look and find links to register for my upcoming living trust and retirement plan trust seminars. My next seminar is going to be Friday, excuse me, Saturday, February 2nd in my office here in San Jose starting at 9 o'clock. So I have two seminars back to back. Feel free, if you wish, to come to one of those seminars, but you should register first because space is limited. Until next week. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, Plan Your State Radio, and I'll see you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.